Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of React Roundup. I'm your host, Dave Sedia, and we're joined by our panelists. Today, we have Leslie Cohnwine. Hey, y'all. We've got Lucas Rias. Hello, everybody. And Thomas Aylott. Hello. And as a guest today, we have Farzad, and he's here to talk to us a bit about representing components as systems and state charts and all that kind of fun stuff. So welcome to the show, Farzad. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Such a great feeling to be on this podcast. A lot of good people who I follow on Twitter are here, <laughs> my heroes. <laughs> well, thanks for being here. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. That really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. It's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. Could you tell us a bit about your background and like how you became a developer and how you got into this all? Sure. It's actually quite an interesting story. Um, coming from an, an academic background, uh, I was studying astrophysics and aerospace engineering back in college. I was kind of a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Then I dropped out of college on the last semester because uh, I kind of figured out that this is not the, the path I'm going to take for the rest of my life. Although I was really passionate about like uh, being an amateur astronomer and like observing the night sky, which I am still passionate about. But I figured that Programming in general is something I'm more passionate about to take as a career in my life. So I dropped out of college and started self-teaching myself on web on how to do programming, especially uh, web programming. I took services such as like Codecademy and stuff to, to learn programming. And I think it was around three months after that when I dared enough to apply for, for a job as a web developer in, in a company back in Iran. I'm originally coming from Iran, by the way. Well, surprisingly, I got that job. It's been almost six and a half or seven years since that happened. And this is like in, in the whole my my career, I've been mostly a front-end developer working with JavaScript and TypeScript, but I'm passionate about all the clients. Uh, I go uh, far out of my comfort zone, usually trying out new ideas and stuff. But as long as JavaScript goes and different clients, I go as well. Cool. I, so I have one quick question regarding your, your background. Aerospace engineering sounds like the coolest thing ever. So, yeah. For, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, so you mentioned you were, like, more in the academia, but did you have any contact with, like, uh, practitioners of aerospace engineering, and how did it compare? Okay, so... I should have uh, clarified it before I mentioned that I was uh, studying aerospace engineering. I was passionate about night sky and uh, observing it and like learn how stars and galaxies work in general. And I've been always passionate about physics. That's why I started uh, studying those college materials when I was back in high school with one of my friends. And we applied for the student Olympiads that time, got a silver medal. Uh, <laughs> 
That's exactly why I like took aerospace engineering as a major in college, which, which later on I figured out this is more not aerospace, but aero air, more on the air side rather than the space side. All right. Oh, yeah. I, I can see how that, that name is kind of misleading, actually. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, there's space on Earth too, right? <laughs> it's just filled with air. Yeah, true. That's interesting. And then you mentioned you became a software developer. You started working with UIs. And then we watched a couple of your talks that you mentioned about like sharing behavior. Can you talk a little bit more about that and how these ideas started populating your mind? Since I was most of the time working on the client side, like on mobile and uh, on web and even, even some desktop experience. When you work on different clients, you gradually figure out that, hey, most of the logic you're implementing is just repeated and repeated between different platforms. And it would yeah. be super nice if we had a way that we could share this logic, especially because the components that you render and uh, the components that develop for those clients are mostly kind of similar to each other, but the logic is not usually portable. So the problem is, most of the times you see that this is a repetitive task, but you can't find a, ben- a practical way to share this behavior and logic per se. That has different reasons. One of them can be because of the partial implementation of the standards in different, different platforms, such as browser problems that we have these days. But I, I saw this, but I couldn't find a good way to uh, communicate this, and I wasn't smart enough to find a practical solution for this. Until I found a, uh, a very interesting article uh, from David Korshit about the state machines used in JavaScript and specifically used for developing UI. It just rang some bell. It, it, like I, I, I knew that I know this stuff, but I couldn't see it before reading that article. It was so aligned with the philosophy and the, like, my, my thought path. So I just followed it and everything started from there. Yeah, we had, we had Dave on and it's really inspiring. Yeah, his... Talks about state charts and stuff. Yeah. So one of the things I always struggle with, right, is like how to actually use these things practically. Could you maybe talk a little bit about how you've actually kind of gone from the big idea of a state machine or state charts and then actually put that into applications that you're building? Sure. I'm pretty sure that most of the developers these days are working with JavaScript for developing UI and, and they're, they're mostly working with React, I guess. People are familiar with the idea of how Redux works and um, what's like the architecture of ma- managing state on the front end side. So when, when you talk about the state machines and the state charts, usually when you search it online, you find like a Wikipedia article that talks about quintuples or you, you seem to find like uh, academic papers that are filled with mouth words of words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't you don't usually like you can't follow, especially for me because I'm not coming from a CS background. But I, I managed to find uh, a couple of people who were passionate about this, and uh, they wrote some practical articles and different mediums. And like I, I read them, it was still kind of blurry. I couldn't I couldn't see the practicality. I couldn't just get up and running with it. I understood the concept, but I didn't know where to start. Then I found Exoset Library, a library developed by David Korshit for reporting the state chart behavior and uh, using the state machines to develop UI in JavaScript. So let's, let's think about um, like what is a state machine or a state chart from the beginning. Uh, a state machine, well, from an academic background, it's, it's a model for computing something. It's for managing and controlling. It's about taking over, um, over branching and managing a finite amount of states declaratively, not imperatively. 
it's not clear from that definition. So what, what I like to think about state machines is that they are a black box that you give them some input and you tell them, if I gave you this input, this is how you're supposed to behave. And I'm kind of expecting these sort of outputs. If you think about it, this is kind of similar to the reducing logic that we're all familiar with in Redux. Yeah, it also sounds a lot like kind of the, the functional programming kind of philosophy that kind of shaped React from the beginning. Uh, kind of, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's because most of the times this, this reducing logic and um, this reducing logic, you can see it everywhere in developing UI. And it kind of rings some bells because it aligns well with the event-driven paradigm that they follow in, in developing UIs, especially in JavaScript. If you think about the history of graphical user interfaces, people from the time that Alan Kay and his team was developing the first versions of graphical user interfaces in a small talk, people have been using event-driven paradigm from that time more than three decades. And we still follow that even though it's 2019 and we have like developed many, many frameworks. Yeah. Yeah, the event-driven model seems to stick around. And I, I, it's interesting to think about those sorts of things sometimes like you wonder... If that didn't exist, how would we how would we start from scratch today? Yeah. I think we'd reinvent it. Yeah, yeah, we probably would. I, it, it seems like it works, you know. I think it's a lot of it has to do with the the barrier to getting started. A lot of people just like it's really easy to get started with event driven stuff. It's like okay, when I click this, do this. Okay, boom, done. And that's kind of how like we teach kids how to code. From the beginning is like all, all the little, you know, baby coding things all start out with, you know, event driven stuff. And like, I didn't even hear the concept of state machines until maybe a decade into my career. <laughs> right and now I'm still kind of hazy on what it, what is that? Like, I don't want to be the idiot. Like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I remember like when we had, um, what was his name? The other guy, Dave? Dave Corsi. Yeah, yeah. Corsi. when we had yeah. him on the show. Like, I'm sorry, I have to stop you again. Because like, what are you talking about? What is that? And he like kind of stepped it through. It's like one of the things he said is, okay, take your regular React application, find all of your event handlers, take the logic out of that and put it in one centralized place. I'm like, wait, what? It was just such a huge concept of being able to reuse things on that kind of level. If you don't mind, I want to correct it a bit. It's not specifically about reusing or sharing. That comes as, as a side effect. But the main concept is about how you declaratively be able to communicate a certain behavior. Mm, I, I, yeah. I would like to think about it. The, the concept of a state machine might sound really, really, um, you know, like uh, crazy at first. But when you get to see the point, you will feel that this has been always with you in your career. You have been developing and coding with it all the time. You just didn't figure out that's the name of it. Think about like... Yeah. You, don't, you, can, you can just go out of, you know, programming in general. You can just think about how you teach something to someone else. For example, take your kid as an example. You want to teach him how to, like, play baseball or, like, play something with a ball. You say that, hey, kid, look at me. I'm going to throw this ball. And once I throw this, you have to follow it and catch it and fetch it. This is event-driven. This is event and action. And there is a reason also for that, because I believe that the whole nature around us is actually working based on that paradigm. This is exactly why we followed that when, once we wanted to, the way that we wanted to develop graphical user interfaces, if you read the history, it's all about how we simulate the nature, how we simulate something that already makes sense. 
that doesn't have a learning path with it. We already know how to work with each other and how to talk to each other. Why not just do, make the machine do that too? Why not like see the impact? This is like the impression behind why, why people even came up with the idea of graphical user interfaces. Because before that, we had text-based user interfaces, command lines. Well, text is graphics, technically. <laughs> <laughs> so really, I don't know. This idea seems like it's actually more about how we think about it to start and that it actually might be a little bit more natural of a progression to think about things kind of from the state chart perspective first before you're even getting into code. Does that ring a bell for anyone else? Yeah, it's like the kind of the whiteboard model. It's like, okay, how do we... I remember distinctly, um, like one of the, the best parts of my career when I was working actually in the office with somebody. Yeah, I know, remote development isn't always perfect. And just like grabbing a guy, going to a whiteboard and just like, okay, let's just talk it out and like draw the bubbles and draw the noodles between the things. Like, how is it going to work? But to be able to like take something like that and have it, actually be implemented and be able to reason on it separately from the implementation of the UI and the buttons and the, and to be able to actually iterate on that as like a piece of code instead of it just being, you know, left in the whiteboard. That would really help with onboarding and communication and just clarity of like you could immediately see, oh, there's obviously a bug there because this noodle doesn't connect to this box or whatever. Yeah, it's, it's usually because when you, you want to like model something with the state machines, you have to think about concurrent amount of checkpoints that the code gets there and wants to rest. And then from there, based on different events, can just travel to other states. When you think about them as like separate points, then everything just, um, you know, like, like comes out of life. Something like usually when you think imperatively, you're thinking time-based. You go from a timeline. Okay, the user starts my page from here. I render these. Then I fetch these. These added to the list. I show them. There is a timeline. I know that we have to like consider time as a dimension while we're programming as a lifetime of the software. But this doesn't necessarily have to be the thinking model that we follow while we want to develop a model. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure if that even makes sense. Yeah, 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 I understand what you're saying. And another thing that I think it uh, makes state charts more practical to think, one thing that, that also sparked me was like the question, how different is it from like pure React programming, right? When we manage a state in a component in React, we're thinking about different states, right? This dot set state or the set state from the from the hook, you are you're giving the next state and we're rendering it. So when we uh, look at the React programming model purely, we're dealing with okay. So we have these states. When we think in the state chart way, we also think about which actions. We, we treat the actions that will, will transition from one state to the other. We think of them as first class. So this way we can think about, okay, so my component is rendered and now I have two available actions. This action will, will bring me to a new state. This other action I'll keep in the same state. So this is the way, uh, I think this is the most practical way to start thinking about it. It's like when you treat not, not only your static states as first-class citizens, but also the transition between them. And that's why I think most of the bugs disappear when you start thinking about that, even if you do, are not using uh, uh, libraries, because 
some actions are not possible to be done in some states, and then you don't even implement it. So this is the kind of thing that I believe is, yeah. is the first the first way of, of thinking about a better UI is like, okay, so let's not only think about the static states, let's also think about the transition between them, which actions. Because all that logic's in there. I mean, it's all in your code. It's just hidden. And, you know, somebody new coming on the team, they're just it's going to take time and energy to, to discover all the different paths throughout the, the logic and transitions yeah. between states. And yeah, cause I you have to read the code. It's not, it's not <laughs> right? laid out as states. You have to read through and be like, okay, if this thing happened, like you might have like a literal if block or <laughs> state or whatever, and you've got to build this state chart in your head versus like right. having it all explicit. And you ha- you're forced to figure out like, okay, well, if I want to get here, I need, I need a line that goes from state A to state B. And mm-hmm. so how do I implement that yeah. versus like, well, I have this UI right now and I want to get to something over there and I'm just going to add like, I'm just going to add a set state call or whatever. <laughs> That's um, it. Imagine a map of the United States that only has the cities and the towns and no roads. It just assumes everybody will just figure out how to get there teleportation, whatever. Yeah, if you implement a map as a series of instructions, like as a bulleted list, you know, go to this place and draw a town and then go over here and draw a town and then go over here and draw a road. If you want to figure out how to get from town A to town B, that's going to be really hard to figure out, like to to plot out all the things. It also seems like it'd be easier to test an application that's built this way, right? Like if you have that declarative, like straightforward state chart, state machine, testing that becomes a little bit more straightforward. It's actually, well, you can abstract that away and let the machine test itself. See, now you're just talking very crazy cool. talk. <laughs> <laughs> That's very cool. So that would be interesting. So how, I want to dig into that a little bit. Like, how would the deceit machine know what to do with your states? Does it just check that all the states are valid? Or When you're modeling, you have to define the behavior in a way that you map your states with the events that the machine will accept in, when, when it's residing in that state. And what are the set of side effects that need to run when you're transitioning from one to another. So once everything is defined in the construction time and not on the runtime, and everything is like explicit upfront, the machine just transitions between those states and acts as kind of like a firewall that rejects whatever that is invalid. It's like a whitelisting of mapping of states and events. Okay, interesting. You just let it look at all the possible actions and, and just start going, is that? That's actually how it works, yeah. So you define the path, and whatever that, that is whitelisted when you're in, that, in, in, in the points on that path that are the states, and the machine will just take care of it for you. I think it's, it's a good point where we, um, I, I kind of like realize that we're um, using two different terms, state machines and state charts. If you want, we can also clarify on the difference of those because they are that different. Would help. Yeah, let's great. do that. <laughs> yeah, so a state machine is basically a fine, defining a finite set of states and defining that what are those events that the machine can take and respond to while transitioning from state A to B. But this will soon hit a problem, and that's called a state explosion, because when you want to model something in finite state machines, you have to find finite amount of states, and not everything can be modeled based on those. Things like animating, for instance, or things like volume on a volume manager, as my example in the talk. Things that are not concrete per se, things that you know the range, but you can't just find the concrete points. That's why if you want to model something with state machines, it gets a bit impractical and won't scale well. 
it will soon like have a hundred or two hundred different sites in a real real world UI that you will soon like figure out this is even harder than the imperative code. Because of the history, David Harrell, who brought up the idea of the state charts and he like invented this term. He, he was kind of developing a user interface for the AVNX system in Israel. And since it was a mission critical project and the, the pilots' lives were at stake, they figured out that they can't just do it with pure code. So they followed the state machines, but they realized that the state machines have problems if they want to model this. So they worked on something called the state charts and how they're different. Well, the state charts bring the idea of extended state or basically the context or put into single words there, the data that you need to hold and reason based on those. So something as what's the current volume of this video or what's the amount of water that is right now in this class, if you want to animate it, for instance. They also bring different structures. Not everything can be flattened in UI. Things should happen sometimes when other things have already happened. Something like a traffic light. You want the pedestrian traffic light to operate only when the other traffic light, the parent one, is in a certain state, isn't like the red state. Yeah. (laughs) They bring hierarchy. But some other things can happen at the same time, but you don't find a good way to do that with pure final state machines. Things can happen in parallel. Things like a file manager that can have a download file list and an upload file list. You, you You should be able to operate both of them at the same time. And also there are other types of machines that these bring. And, and there are like some other things such as, because with pure final state machines, if you want to conditionally do something, you don't have a native way to support guarding. The branching thing that we do everywhere, if the app is in current state, do this, otherwise go to this state, conditionally branching. So to support that, they have a, they have a concept called guarding. Also, they have support for entry actions and exit actions because if you don't have support for entry and exit, then you have to define another state node, which is kind of impractical in practice. Yeah, I remember um, Dave was talking about that. It's kind of like being able to define the side effects within the, the state transitions themselves. So like a new thing in React is the use effect hook, which has been really great for being able to, to make side effects reusable, but they're still tied to the UI. But a lot of side effects shouldn't be tied to the UI. They should be tied to the state and state transitions specifically entering and exiting states. Exactly. Yeah, being able to be explicit about that and to be able to reason on that in a system that's separate from whatever your random implementation of the actual UI and divs and spans and CSS seems like an obvious good thing. (laughs) (laughs) It is actually because in theory, your machine is just a definition. It's a declarative model of how something is supposed to behave, not how it's supposed to behave, not not how it's supposed to run or execute. So you can push this execution to the application. You know that, for instance, if the user is downloading a file, you can define it in the machine that, hey, if the download is like in the 100% state right now, show this button or like somehow notify the user that the download is done but you don't know how it's going to be technically implemented. You want to abstract the implementation detail away. So you just define it in the machine that, hey, notify user that download is done, and you delegate this to the implementation, whatever that is. Sometimes you want to just use window.alert, but sometimes you want to report analytics, but sometimes else we want to develop a, a specific notification system for that, something really fancy. 
Yeah, so this is where you, you got into in your talk a bit where you can reuse the logic part and then the UI almost is just an implementation detail at that point. You can implement whatever UI you want. Exactly. Could you talk a little bit about, I guess, practical examples of what you could, where you could use this logic and maybe how you'd work into different frameworks, that kind of thing? Sure. Um, for instance, React has been developed in a way that they carry a core functionality and they let the rendering delegated to the platform. That's why we have... Um, we see a lot of similarities between React codebase and React Native codebase. And this yeah. is actually quite productive for developers because you can port the implementation. But porting the implementation might not be really practical in practice. What you want is porting the logic and the behavior. You know that if you have like an autocomplete component, it needs to show suggestion, for instance, but you don't know how it, but the different implementation may vary between the platforms. Yeah, like the, the difference between like DOM and React Native, for example, exactly. is like, you know, it's a completely different API as far as like how to create and manipulate UI elements on the screen. There's, you know, Android and iOS, and there's a bunch of different platforms. And it's even been ported to like graphic design tools and having that that separate separation between the the definition of the logic and behavior versus the implementation of the actual underlying API has given us so much more freedom and portability that's literally impossible without them. Of course, exactly. But if you think about it, although we're still trying to uh, abstract all this away, we're still tight coupled to the React world. We're still using the internal APIs of React on how to like define the state and how to update it. This is a still implementation detail, in my opinion. Some people might argue that this is abstracting the logic and the implementation might not be a very efficient way of developing UIs. But I personally believe that this gives me this opportunity to focus on the logic first, because that, that's, that's what brings the most of the value of, of a certain application. If the behavior is broken, user will notice it. But if the implementation is broken, user might not necessarily notice that. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. It's like an investment in, in the long-term maintainability of something, because you got to think total cost of ownership. So much of my career, the, the places that I worked and the teams I was working with, and maybe me myself, was thinking way too short term, just not thinking about what is it going to take to maintain this over time? What if somebody new joins the team and adds something? How, how easy is it to join the team and leave the team and transition and ramp up? And you know, what if I haven't looked at this code in six months? And I would say that not only that, it, 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 you're, you're saying a really good point about communicating with other devs and onboarding, but I believe that having a declarative standard of talking about of talking about behaviors means that we can also collaborate and talk with non-devs in a really deep yeah. way about our UIs. 
the business owners and the designers, they're very smart people. <laughs> and a lot of times they have so much more context on what actually needs to be done than us. So it's really good to have like, a, yeah, it's really good to have a, a, a formal way of bringing the, the behavior that will actually be to them. And then they start giving feedback that it's objective, not, you know, and well and formal. So I think this is the, the, the best part, like showing one of the, if you use XState and you created a JSON config, generate one of the visualizations and bring to the designer or the business owner. It's such a, a rich experience. So yeah. I think this is probably like the, one of the most uh, interesting yeah, aspects. Indeed, but uh, I would say take a reverse path, let them design the wireframe and then let your tooling generate that for you. What if we had a prototyping tool that you could just drag and drop and build the pieces of components in the, in the, in the design as Legos that compose together? And the implementation detail can be for the prototype can be like automatic generating the logic based on state machines. And you could just like put it in X, for example, Xcode and generate the Objective C or Swift for it. I put it in like Android Studio and generate the Android application for it. Shut up and take my money. <laughs> In that regard, there's actually, um, there are some movements towards that. Um, I know that one of the uh, core contributors of Celebral JS, if I am correct, uh, in pronouncing that correctly, is a state management library. One of those people, he is trying to work on something called Overmind, which is a state-first tool that you focus on the state, you define the, the state based on some spec. It has like a formalism language you can just talk to him. And then it will generate that for you for the implementation. For example, you can say that given that the user in this state, I want to run this side effect and then be able to transition to a state B based on event C, for instance. And the implementation could be generated for the specific JavaScript framework you're, you're working with in your product. I know that people are doing that and there is a VS Code plugin that right now generates that for you. Okay, so I need it, this it, link. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can find it later and, and send it over chat so people can use it. There's also um, this tool by Facebook. I don't remember the name. I've heard but, of them. Um, there's, there's a uh, <laughs> heard of Facebook. <laughs> yeah. um, there's a prototyping tool that they 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 uh, built. I don't remember that name. Origami. 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 Uh, yeah, I was involved you. in that kind of stuff when I was there. Okay. Yeah. Well, I know that David was talking about it, that it like takes a um, patch-based way of composing components in, in like UI. But as far as I know, this doesn't use state machines. But probably state machines are not the silver bullet and they're not the right path for future. What do we know, right? Yeah, but they're exciting enough to try. I think, <laughs> I think it's being able to codify those whiteboard diagrams, basically, and being able to, to shop those around to the designers and the business owners and everything. And incrementally too, right? It's not something you have yeah. to like go rewrite your whole app. It's you could just do it on right. the next feature, right? It's like anything. It's like, it, you know, the best tool for the job. And if you don't know of all the tools that are out there, you're going to try and hammer curly nails because you don't know about a screwdriver. I've never actually used uh, XState in, pro in production in my job, but I've already created two or three complicated components that I talked in a state machine way in the documentation and in the PR and in the comments. 
and this was already like a big a big game for to to me like even yeah. the yeah the reduce the state the use reducer that i used inside the the component was like in a state machine esque uh style that that was already like very productive to me so i i think that just like go read and learn so now i have one question we talked about maybe it's not the silver bullet. Have you ever encountered uh, a situation where you were like, mm, I think it's not helping on this? Um, <laughs> of of no. course. Yeah, of course. For me, I felt that a lot of times. It's quite hard to get on running with the state machines just because we kind of lack of uh, skills in modeling. People who are coming from the world of domain modeling in, in different languages, they might have a really easy time to get into this. But me, for example, I'm, I'm coming from um, the world of imperative jQuery, then coming to React. But then after that, thinking about how the UI is going to behave before implementing, that sounded really crazy. <laughs> so yeah. one of the blockers of using this can be myself as a developer and my knowledge in modeling. And to be able to see everything and predict everything at once before even writing one line of code. And sometimes the business is limited. You don't know all the spec. Most of the times that the startups are developing products, they don't know everything about tomorrow. Some of them actually take this strategy and work based on whatever you can design today. So sometimes we don't know what we're going to design and we can just foresee it today. That's a bit problematic because if you have frequently changing code, then it can be a bit you know, annoying to change that all the old because the way that a statement should work is that one change can affect everything. Another thing can be, just some, some problems are even too easy to, to be modeled by that because that state machine modeling can be an overkill. But sometimes things are super yeah. complicated and they cannot just be modeled easily in a state machines. It's kind of a death by a thousand cuts or the, um, the boiling frog thing. Like the temperature goes up so slowly, you don't realize it until, oh crap, let's rewrite it all with a state machine. Well, too late. Yeah, true. Yeah. Lucas was talking about Developing with state charts, how makes it is really easy and like you, you see everything up front. I once used it for, we're kind of abusing the pre-push hook in my current project at work because we don't, we, for some limitations, we can't afford CI, not financially, but like technically. So we kind of abuse the pre-push hook to check all the quality of the code and linting and formatting and this stuff. We had to run that in Node.js and managing child prices for doing everything in parallel in Node.js can be super, super complicated. We tackled that using state charts and everything just worked, man. <laughs> I want more information. <laughs> <laughs> so basically what we did was that we thought about different processes and instead of like subscribing each of them to each other and then thinking about cleaning up and thinking about how they're going to behave in, together, we thought about what sort of a states the, the CI tool can be in and what are the whitelisted paths that it can take in order to like finish the job. And soon we, we found out that since the subscription can be internally modeled by the library that we're using, when you just go out from a state, the child process is going to be cleaned automatically. Ooh, This is like super helpful if you're working in an event-driven system that you have a lot of subscriptions everywhere and you have to somehow spread the business logic in different event listeners. It's something really frustrating. So when you see everything up front, it kind of feels good. It almost feels like the, this whole thing is the, like the major value that I'm getting out of it is just kind of forcing me to, to dedicate time thinking and organizing my thoughts and then building up a thing that, that's not just thrown away, that's actually maintained over, over a while. So 
it's much easier to think. So you end up spending more time thinking because what I naturally want to do is just start coding, like hit the keyboard as fast as I can and then, and then throw it away and start over. But if I just take some time to stop, step away from the computer, like draw out some squiggles on paper, actually paper or think at all. <laughs> yeah. It helps. We need to understand the problems that we're solving and we need to understand the solutions that we're trying to, to apply. Like programming has this really interesting property of being a purely intellectual activity, right? We don't need to like create uh, and hone any skills and we don't need to be prepared physically. It's, it's all in our mind. It's all intellectually. So it's all about if we can understand every piece of the system that we are implementing, we can implement the system, right? So it's, it's only a matter of like knowing a little bit like the code here and there. So I think that these are like tools that help us understanding our problem and understanding the solution that, that we're proposing. And even before we start touching the, the keyboard, we can find some flaws in our solutions. We can find, oh my God, I didn't think about three different <laughs> screens that I need to have. And it was like obvious, or maybe I did not think about what's going to happen after the user clicks the submit button. What's going to happen to this model? What's going to happen to the data in the screen? So it just seems like this is something that is put putting your thoughts on the, you know, on the front line and you just just need to, to think about them. And reminds me of other ways and other tools. Like I know you you mentioned Elm too in your in your talk. It's like having a strong typed language compiler, it's also a little bit like that. It's like they're it's just tools that are trying to to make us thinking about the, the problems of our, the solutions and the uh, in our minds. Exactly. You're like decoupling the abstract behavior from all the rest, right? From the design, from the integration, from all of those other pieces. Exactly. It's it's not just about writing though, you know, like it's 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 a very valid point that you have to write something that you have like you can tame and you have the full control. But it's also about maintaining. Building softwares are usually easy. Maintaining them is super hard. You have to be able to <laughs> yes. deliver new features. You have to be able to understand it three months from now. How can you follow that easily? We tend to write tests, not just because we want to test the software, but we want to avoid breaking them. And we tend to write documentations just because we want to figure out what we were thinking at that moment, three or four months from now. And we have to ironically keep documentation testing and the code in sync. And this is impractical. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, myself from three months from, from now usually hates myself today. It's like, why, why did you do this? <laughs> why I don't understand what's happening here? You so, have yeah. threshold. My threshold is two hours. <laughs> the definition of legacy code is, is code that I did not write this hour. <laughs> True. I, I couldn't find a, a scientific proof for this, but I just, I'm just going to go on and say it. I think as human beings, whenever we're learning something, we have to push a finite amount of data in our mind and consider everything. So once it's like, it's like a finite capacity. When you think about line 31, you have to throw over line one. So you can't just consider everything at once. So you cannot be able to reason about it all the time. You need a better way, a formalism to think about it. And it's just 
watching something happening is just way easier than reading something. It's almost like it's like leverage for thinking. Like a physical lever lets you lift heavier things. A lever for thinking lets you think more complicated thoughts, kind of like an order of magnitude, more complexity that you can manage. It's like a superpower for for thinking. The higher bandwidth way of representing something, I guess, right? Like, like I guess it, it's a, like it's the the picture is worth a thousand words idea. Like um, you have this yeah. thing that's easy to understand visually. That would take a lot more. That maybe there's a ton of different ways to explain the same thing in yeah. words. That yeah, it's about using your own memory to think about something that matters rather than thinking about transitions that you just have to like read again and understand. You have to remember what you were fetching and what was the interface of the data you were fetching, but it can be just an arrow in an image. You don't have to remember that and use your own resource for that. Right, right. Yeah, and there, there is some sort of scientific thing about, about how many things you can keep in your head at the same time. I know I've heard yeah. studies about that, yeah. Science. We're not going, doing good at things that have the dimension of time. We're not doing good at things that are not synchronous. We usually think about things as parsing something from top to bottom, but as like at the moment that something gets asynchronous and something goes into another dimension, we just get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. It is quite hard for human brain to consider parallel things or things that can happen in the background. Yeah. And then I've been kind of learning about learning modalities lately. There's like eight different styles of learning and there's like, it's, it's complicated. But like a, a lot of people are like visual learners. They need to be able to kind of generate the visualizations in their head in order to understand. Other people are like audio oriented. And then some people learn like more physicality style. So if you can combine these things, if you can think about things and reason on things in a way that kind of fits the modality that your brain works best, it's like you get an acceleration, like you can go 10 times faster. I imagine the integration of state charts with 3D printers. Is that what you're talking about? <laughs> Maybe. For the... <laughs> There's my startup idea. I'm looking for reality. Galaxy brain. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so every time we have something that is uh, really complex and our cognitive power cannot understand every piece, which is probably 100% of the software we write, we need to modularize it somehow, right? We need to, to, to separate into pieces so whenever I'm thinking about one piece, I don't need to, to think about the tails of the other ones, right? So this is what like a good module is. Uh, and that's what a good abstraction is to like, every time I reference one of these modules, I, I don't need to, to learn, I don't need to think about the unimportant details. So it's uh, interesting that with React, we have, modules of my components. So when I think about one component, I don't, th I don't need to think about all the other components in the application. State charts is a little bit like modularizing the behaviors, right? It's like I can't think about the behaviors alone without being attached to my component, without being attached to my, to my UI. So it kind of like free my brain that in my case, I probably can think about 2.3 things at the same time, mostly. <laughs> so it frees my brain to think about, it creates a module of the behavior. So this is, uh, this is good. Whenever we can find something that can isolate a part of the system and I can just uh, think about that 
it's really good. Yeah, I totally agree. I think we're kind of on the right path right now with the hooks in React because we saw the problem with class-based components. We, 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 we saw the urge for other people's use cases in the community that they need to be able to share the logic and port it to some other components or even some other platforms. So we built hooks, but personally, my experience is that hooks are also a bit, a bit hard to scale in certain use cases. I think that's true for all the, for all the solutions and abstractions that we have in software. Yeah, it's very much like more of an atomic level of reusability, but I think I, I've seen some people try to use it for much, much higher level things, and it, I don't think it scales that high. Yeah, yeah true. One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. Have you done a good time to go to PIX? I can kick it off. So my pick for this week is a GitHub repo called Reverse Interview that I saw on Hacker News. It is like questions to ask a company during an interview. So it's a whole whole list of things that you can Ooh, kind of tough. probe them that's on. Nice. Yeah, it's, it's a good long list about the company, the business, remote work, office work, PTO, how the team works, all this kind of stuff. So pretty cool. Let's move on to uh, Leslie. Have any picks this week? Yeah, so uh, I was at React Rally just a couple of weeks ago. It was uh, August, I think, 22nd. And all the talks are up on, on YouTube, so I highly recommend checking those out. But in particular, on this topic, David Korshid, who we've mentioned a couple of times, who's David K. Piano on Twitter, gave a, a really crazy talk that, that sort of blew my mind about writing pure tests and applying, basically, like taking from automation to auto-generation was the name of the talk and like ways to automate the creation of tests when you're using state machines. I need to go watch it a couple more times, but uh, he's a fantastic speaker and it's a great talk. So go check it out. Awesome. That sounds super relevant to what we've been talking about today. It's awesome. <laughs> Lucas, any picks today? So yes, uh, this week I came across, uh, it's a blog post from Amelia Wattenberger. It's an introduction to D3.js. I've always seen D3.js here and there, and it's always, every time I see like a, a blog post on it, it's always that how to draw a now kind of thing. So they have like one example that is like really simple, and it's like, I think I got it. And then it's like, so this is what we did, and it's like extremely complicated, and I never follow through since I never had to actually like work with really complicated graphs but this one is like really well done and and i could really understand like each piece of the tree and i'm excited to to, to use it in a project this is the best the tutor tutorial i've came across and her blog post is, is is really good too yeah that's an extremely well done blog post it's really cool it's like interactive and like as you scroll yeah. the animations happen and like you can see all the code for everything it's great yeah it's great 
definitely check that out. Yeah, and it was good to actually understand why the tree exists. That's probably like the most interesting part. Cool. Thomas, any picks this week? Yeah, I've been trying to get into machine learning for a long time, but I I recently had a pretty big breakthrough. There were some talks done at uh, Google I.O. 2019. There's one in particular, a machine learning zero to hero, and kind of that whole series there really just made it so much clearer, like how to get started with it, how is it actually usable, and what is it good for? I thought it was very interesting. Apparently, there's like, you can do machine learning stuff with JavaScript now. You know, what a time to be alive. Very cool. Barzad, do you have any picks this week? Yeah, actually, um, I'm not sure how practical it is for other people, but I always have problem um, trying to optimize things that are really like heavy in terms of computation and running frequently in JavaScript. There are like different techniques like throttling and debouncing, and I always have problem finding the difference between those. So I found a really useful link that visualizes this for you when you're scrolling in a certain div. It's quite interesting if you want to like see everything visually, see the difference and like which one is for you. And another one is a, an amazing article written by uh, one of the co-founders of Stack Overflow. It's called Don't Let Architecture Astronauts Scare You. It's about how far people can go on top of the ladder of abstraction and how we should be like aware of these problems. He calls them architecture astronauts. It's, it's a really neat, nice read. Awesome, thanks. Yeah, Joel and, Joel and Software has got, got a ton of good posts on there too. Yeah, that visualization tool is really cool because I could never remember the difference between those things. <laughs> yeah, this is, it's very cool. This is awesome. Nice. Awesome. Amazing. Well, I guess that about wraps up this episode of React Roundup. Farzad, thanks for being on the show. This was great. Thanks for having me over. Yeah, Thank totally. You. Yes. And until next week, talk to you later. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.